Back in 2018, Serena Williams told the world the harrowing experience of her pregnancy, a C-section followed by blood clots in her lungs and several literal life or death surgeries. Here's the truth. Black women in the US are three to four times more likely to die from a pregnancy-related death than white women. Black babies have an infant mortality rate that is double that of white babies. In 2021, childbirth for black women can still be life-threatening. Welcome to Hall Pass, the podcast. I'm Jamal Andrus. I actually have a baby girl myself. Ava Naomi Andrus is nine months old and frankly, also had a rough delivery day. Ava was born smaller than most babies. My wife's blood pressure shot through the roof before, during, and after delivery day. And my baby had to spend her first night in the ICU before we could just keep her in a room with us. For many women, this uncertainty has them looking for alternatives, one of which is midwives. So today we're speaking with Jamara Amani and Keisha Good, both here to talk about Black midwifery. Keisha Good is the VP of Board of Directors at the National Association of Certified Professional Midwives. She's a sociologist and a self-proclaimed Black midwife enthusiast. Jamara, a Black midwife herself, the director of the Southern Birth Justice Network. As you might imagine, this episode is going to deal with some sensitive subjects, things like infant loss and hospital trauma. So if that's a trigger for you, we totally understand and we'll catch you next time. That being said, without further ado, let's get into it. I want to welcome both of you to the conversation. Thank you all. You know, I don't always have two guests at one time, so this is important mm -hmm. to me. I'm going to try my best to keep the conversation uh, equal on both sides. Let's start with a twofer. Um, what motivated both of you to sort of become a part of this community? Obviously, Jamara is a midwife and uh, Keisha is a midwife enthusiast, specifically a black midwife enthusiast. So um, that's important. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so starting with you, uh, Jamara, what got you into this work? Oh, that's a great question. Thank you, Jamal, for having uh, me on here and with my esteemed colleague, Keisha. Um, and what motivated me was really the births of my own children um, and the experiences that I had um, as a young mom. Um, I became a mother when I was 19 and um, I had an amazing midwife um, for my first birth. And then for my second birth, I had um, a not so great experience because I had a nurse telling me that I had to give birth in bed on my back and that if I stood up, I, it would kill my baby. And I knew it was a lie. And after that experience, I, um, I was like, wow, how many you know, women are they lying to? Um, and and you know, really controlling by fear in, in these hospital environments. And so I went on to have two more children and I had home births. And, um, I knew that, you know, I wanted to be able to shift the culture around birth, um, particularly for Black families, and to be able to be a provider um, of care that was more um, holistic and based in human rights. And at the time, I, you know, the term birth justice wasn't really coined yet, but um, but I knew that, you know, that was the, the mind frame that I was in, that people deserve to be treated with respect and dignity and um, that I wanted to be a part of, you know, bringing that forward. And I had been an activist um, on racial justice, um, 
anti-death um, penalty, prison abolition um, since I was a teenager. And so it was just kind of a natural progression for me in becoming a mother to apply that human rights framework that I had been um, you know, operating in for, for several years to the experience of becoming a mom. Just went through this experience about nine months ago. You walk into these hospitals and you don't know anything. I mean, you, you, you've read what you could find online and you've talked to your mom and your grandmother, but you don't know anything and you're really depending on these folks. Um, and I wanna get into that a bit a little later, but Keisha, can you, you have a very interesting story. Um, I've read a bit of it in the Medium article uh, the significance of this one date in your life that keeps showing up over and over and over again, and and the fact that you have sort of dedicated dedicated your career to this thing. I, tell me a little bit about how you got into this. Yeah, sure. Um, thank you so much for for having me. I'm so happy to be talking to you both. Um, I um, I grew up in the D.C. area, and um, after I graduated from college, I was doing uh, work in schools. And my mother, um, before she passed, um, was a teacher, an English teacher for 40 years in D.C. public schools. And um, I was really passionate about education. I was an English major in college, and predominantly worked with black and brown students. That was important to me. And when I decided to go to graduate school um, to get my doctorate in sociology, I had originally intended to focus on sociology of education. And my intention was to uh, kind of research more about black maternal literacy practices, just kind of how many books are in the home and um, the kinds of books that black women are reading and just how that impacts the literacy practices of their children, not literacy itself, but just like their engagement with um, literature and how they see themselves in literature. That was my intention when I came to graduate school. And then, you know, things really shifted for me because I started delving more into education literature and how kind of blackness shows up. Um, and this is not that different than birth in a lot of ways, but there is a lot of, as we know, kind of pathologizing um, blackness and um, associating blackness with deficits. And I just could not you know, contribute my life to that. It just didn't move me in any way. So I started thinking about okay, what are the conditions in which people enter into the world and how are black people cared for as they are entering into the world? What are black babies entering into even? So I started thinking about just black motherhood but just blackness more broadly. Um, and then um, kind of unsurprisingly that really got me to uh, midwifery and I was stunned by kind of the portrayal of midwifery in the modern imagination, you know, this kind of revival in the 1960s and 1970s, which is really like completely ahistorical. And so I wanted to know, okay, what's going on with the black midwives of 
today, midwifery is overwhelmingly um, white, but that is not at all its history. And so um, there have been sufficient, you know, scholarship, really informative scholarship for me and really helpful about um, brand midwives, you know, black midwives that we all honor and respect and Jamara can speak even better to that than I can, but I really wanted to know about the experiences of um, contemporary black midwives in their professional organizations and in their education pathways. Um, so it became an intellectual thing at first, then it became like, oh no, I really wanna commit you know, my life to this. And um, I, I understood midwifery very differently after my mother passed away. So I wanna to touch on some of the history of this. Um, and, and so Keisha, we'll stick with you briefly for this. Um, it says midwives delivered half the babies in the nation in 1900 um, and just over 10% by the 1930s. Um, and I thought that was mind blowing. Right, tell me first off the history of this thing and also how it has become stigmatized in some circles um, and, and, and how it can change the way it has uh, over time, considering how prevalent it was at one point. Mm -hmm. I think one thing that's always really helpful for me when I talk about this is midwifery's history predates slavery, that our understanding of midwives is not, it, it is connected very closely to slavery, but it is a deeply, deeply ancestral um, practice. And for that reason, it, it deserves so much respect and, and honor that it's not really currently getting. Um, so midwifery, like a lot of things in the Black experience, is deeply tied to colonization and uh, abuse of, um, of Black bodies. And so midwives have always sort of historically always been community figures and they have cared for whole people and whole families and whole communities. And I think it's important to remember that um, midwives, part of their work is birth, a major important part of their work is birth. But, you know, when we really think about historically who they have been, they are deeply tied to grief practices and so many other things that have been disrupted by these systems of colonization and white supremacy and, and so on. Um, but the kind of, it's not the destruction of midwifery because they've always been there. And I think that's another important piece that they have always, always resisted. But this really comes down to the rise of obstetrics as a medical specialty that, um, you know, it has a lot of truth telling to do about how they learned these skills. You know, they learned from midwives, predominantly Black and Indigenous, I mean, Indigenous first, I should say, Indigenous and Black. And, um, immigrant midwives, they learned from them, um, but then also started this kind of uh, public campaign where labeling them as 
dirty and unclean and unsanitary and unhealthy and kind of like we started with this like culture of fear kind of thing that is deeply tied to the history of obstetrics and medicalization of pregnancy and childbirth, you know, in this country. And if you look back at some of these images and some of these early articles in the medical journals, you know, calling midwives necessary evils, we could, you know, list so many of the ways in which they were framed, while also taking not taking their skills but actually being thieves of their of their practices for their own kind of profit and gain has been deeply deeply dangerous and we are still seeing the effects of that today that is where that culture of fear comes from jamar i want to bring you in here because i think the other side of this is centering Black midwives now and sort of bringing them back to um, a, a more relevant place sort of in our culture and, and, and making it a viable option for people um, and removing some of that, some of that stigma that's been attached to it. Tell me a little bit about why this should be a topic of conversation right now. Well, there's many reasons why it should be a topic of conversation. Uh, shout out to Mama Shafia Monroe, who is um, really, um, one of the amazing mothers of Black midwifery, um, her generation of midwives that really came up in the 70s, I call them the Black Panthers of midwifery um, mm -hmm. because they really um, brought it back and restored um, what had been, I don't wanna say lost, um, but what had been systematically removed from Black communities through some of the mechanisms that Keisha was talking about. Why this is important, especially in this moment, is because when we look at the history of Black midwives being systematically eradicated from Black communities um, or being forced to go underground, right, through um, state uh, licensure, which they, you know, started licensing midwives and then they took the licenses away. So they said, we're going to regulate midwifery. Um, and that began in the early 1900s. Um, the Shepherd Towner Act of 1921 was super important um, with really requiring that people become nurses first when nurse education was not accessible to Black people in any large scale. And so you had a situation where, um, for example, the statewide practice midwifery in Florida, uh, where there were 4,000 midwives um, at the turn of the 20th uh, century that were licensed by the state. And today we have 18 licensed Black midwives. Um, so the numbers are very striking. Um, and what that did in our communities is it really created a situation where people were left without that holistic care um, that Keisha was referring to, where midwives were really the pillars of their communities and cared for families as a whole. They were kind of the unofficial pediatricians and, you know, the reproductive health care providers um, overall throughout the full spectrum of reproductive health. And so that channel um, has been systematically removed. And, and to this day, you know, I get calls from people all over the country, really, that are, are looking for, you know, I get IG messages, Facebook messages, phone calls, emails, website inquiries, where people are like, I'm looking for a Black midwife. And in many places, it's really difficult for people to find um, a care provider um, who represents them, their culture, their values, and the type of care they want to receive. And so what happened in our communities is we started to see the uptick of um, maternal mortality and um, morbidity, which is, you know, 
um, you know, people having long-term uh, consequences, negative consequences, health consequences from um, either substandard care, pre-existing conditions that weren't treated, the stress of racism that's because there are no black midwives not mitigated or buffered by, um, you know, this protective force that the black midwives were. And, um, and as birth moved into the hospitals and as prenatal care moved into clinics and doctor's offices and away from midwives, um, that holistic channel was lost. And we, we now have a situation where black women are dying at three and four times the rates of, the, of our white counterparts. Um, and we know, not that we think, we know that the care of midwives is life-saving and life-changing and that the way people feel about their care, the quality of their care, the cultural significance of their care has a huge impact on their outcomes. I mean, I did the math on this recently in the state of Florida. There were four, around 4,000 midwives at the turn of the 20th century. As I mentioned, 3,970 of them were black. Um, and so that meant that there was a midwife to cover every 16 square miles, which means every community really had a midwife. And now we have a situation where with 18 black midwives, um, and, and even overall, if you wanna look at the race, the, the midwives of all races in Florida, there's only, there's less than 200. So there's no way that, you know, those midwives can cover the state. So that's what is contributing to these high rates of um, mortality and morbid morbidity. And it's something that we can change. I, I co-founded the National Black Midwives Alliance in 2018. And one of our goals is to increase the numbers of providers um, of African descent of midwifery care. Let me ask this question. Um, what it seems to me is present and sort of a through line in this conversation is this concept of legitimacy. Who decides what is legitimate, where that decision comes from, and, and what sort of makes uh, something legitimate. Talk about fighting for that legitimacy, if you don't mind. What Jamara said about the Shepherd Towner Act is really significant. And, you know, part of the, the work of, of white supremacy is that it coincides with the systematic disenfranchisement of Black people. And what was done is the creation of these literacy tests. Well, if Black people have been systematically disenfranchised from education and kind of this legitimate credentialing kind of education, using that as a mechanism to determine whether or not they knew how to be a midwife was a very strategic practice. It was one of the strategic practices to attempt to eliminate the black midwife. But again, part of the story is that black midwives have always resisted that. But we still see some of evidence of that today. But when we live in a capitalist, hyper-credential obsessed society, it is not surprising, we call it credentialism or credential inflation. It is not surprising that you know professions kind of like that that goal you try to meet it and then the bar sort of gets changed that's really what has happened um, here too and so I think part of the work is what is required to do the work and what what is the training and education that will meet the requirements to do the work credentials themselves are relatively arbitrary in a lot of ways it just opens doors for you and so on that's not at all to diminish what people learn in their programs, but we do have to assess 
what is happening in education now that is actually not that different. We're not using literacy tests, but it is not that different than these historical disenfranchisement of Black people. You know, I think part of the story here is telling the truth around what's happening. I mean, if we did not start or was not revived in the 1960s. Education alone is not getting more Black people inside of these institutions is not going to save us. We have to kind of tell the truth around all aspects around what is happening. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and Jamara, I think something that, that she touched on that I am just personally curious about is this idea of education. You know, as we sort of are used to, you sign up for a class, you take that class, they hand you a certificate or you know, a GED or a diploma or something at the end. And I, I think it is important to tell people what this process looks like now. I think that's a big part of sort of that trust process. So yeah, midwifery education is very complicated <laughs> because there are several different pathways. Um, and I think that the, the complex nature of it is actually a deterrent to people pursuing the path of midwifery. And I, I hear from people that are like, you know, completely clueless. Um, when we look at the, the Shepherd Towner Act of 1921 and how significant that was and how it really changed the course of midwifery education. Um, and we started to see a lot of nurse midwifery programs kind of popping up around the country. And so now, um, you know, the majority of, of what we call midwives are actually nurse midwives that practice in hospitals and clinics. And um, many of them are great. And many of them work in um, institutions that are, you know, um, run by and based in white supremacist, um, anti-humanist policies. Um, and so, um, you know, while I, I stand in, in solidarity with nurse midwives and at National Black Midwives Alliance, we support all pathways to midwifery. We recognize that there are limitations on, um, you know, folks who are trained in, in institutions, um, uh, you know, PWIs, predominantly white institutions, and then have to then practice in predominantly white institutions and what that does to, to access, what that does to um, the ability to provide culturally relevant care, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so what, what we have also been able to sort of protect in some ways is an independent um, status of midwives, which is the CPM route or the LM route, which is certified professional midwives or licensed midwives. And those folks are generally trained in um, um, either a portfolio process where it's like more of an uh, independent study, then they precept with a practitioner currently practicing midwife, or they go through a school that is also, you know, kind of independent of a university. And, and most of those schools are also predominantly white. Um, we just uh, celebrated last year, Jenny Joseph opening the first black owned um, Meek accredited, Meek is the Midwifery Education Accreditation Council. Um, the first Meek uh, accredited black owned midwifery school. First in 2020. Okay, so, um, you know, that that is really striking that we don't have more. Um, and it speaks to how difficult it is to um, open a midwifery school. And um, within those different pathways, you also have, as Keisha mentioned, all these barriers how many barriers there are um, if you have a family, if you need to work, which is most people, um, how you're expected to be on call. On call meaning like you can get a call to go to a birth at 3 a.m., 
3 p.m., you know, any time of day or night and your phone has to be on, your car has to have gas in it, um, you have to have childcare and you have to be ready to go. And that is, and that is standard requirement for anyone that's in midwifery school. And so um, to, to commit to that, and, and many of these programs don't have financial aid, um, is really a deep sacrifice. And it speaks to the level of, of a calling that midwifery is for, for many people. And it, it really means that a lot of people drop out. A lot of people don't make it, can't make it through. Now, not to mention, then we have an exam that um, folks have to take after they complete midwifery school to get licensure in their states um, or to get a credential, a national credential, which is the CPM. And um, that exam, um, by many reports, um, is uh, biased, um, culturally biased, um, and very antithetical to even the training that people receive. And so, um, and, and there's been a lot of lobbying and, and I have to give respect to my ancestor, Mama Claudia Booker, who passed um, recently and who was a big advocate for changing that exam and for changing the process for, by which people become licensed because um, it's very difficult to go through all those years of school, um, you know, attend 50 births or 80 births or however many births are required and then face an exam that you're not even prepared to take because it's not set up and designed in the way that you were, you were trained in many states require this exam to become a midwife. And so you have a state now like Georgia where midwives are pretty much, you know, what we call underground practicing in a very illegal space, which is not illegal, not legal, just a very gray area. Um, and there's legislation being in, introduced um, and talk about the fight. There's been a fight in Georgia to really maintain the status of black midwives who are currently serving their communities and are in danger of being disenfranchised by a law that would require them to take this exam. Um, and so this is kind of, you know, a repeat of even what was going on in the 1920s. Here we are in the 2020s and it's happening again. Um, and it would require even someone who is, is my mentor and preceptor, um, a midwife, Mama Saran, who's been practicing longer than I've been alive, you know, to go back to school. And it just doesn't really make any sense. I would ask either of you um, to tell me the factors that are at play here and why those numbers are one, so staggering, but two, how they got that bad. You know, we talk about social determinants of health around, you know, food security, housing security, economic security, and, and so on. And those things are factors in health. And we have to be mindful of those things. And we're talking like full health of people. It is not about my individual kinds of behaviors. I can't diet my way into a good birth being Black in America. I can't drink enough water. You know, it's not that. It's these structural and social factors. And going back to this piece around education, we really do think about education. We think about it as like a gospel somehow. We think about it as sort of a faith-based institution, but education also does not get us out of um, Black maternal mortality. I'm a Black woman in America with a doctorate. I'm, I'm part of those statistics too. The doctorate doesn't get me out of that or absolve me in some way. And so we really have to think about just being Black in America then. Issues around structural racism and toxic stress 
wear on the body and that we, if we are going to, again, we're going to have a conversation around these issues. We have to talk about instances of structural racism, just how like deeply embedded it is in all of these institutions. It is not acknowledging black pain that goes deep, deep, deep into slavery. Like somehow thinking that our bodies are fundamentally different and we can handle pain. No, we experience, you know, pain too. And we need structural things in order to survive. Yeah, and just to, to build on um, what Keisha is saying, um, you know, I hear from young black women quite often at, at um, the nonprofit that I'm the executive director of, Southern Birth Justice Network. We have a program for, for young people, young activists, young parents. Um, and, you know, some of them talk about the, the fear of becoming a parent the fear of becoming a mom. Um, and like, I don't know if I wanna have kids because, um, you know, I don't wanna die, <laughs> you know, and I don't wanna be abused in a hospital system and I don't, I don't wanna set foot in a hospital. And, you know, for a young, healthy person, having, having a baby would be the only reason you would have to set foot in the hospital. So they're like, I'll just steer clear of that. Um, and it's really rooted in the, in the things that, that Keisha talked about, that fear is really rooted in, um, you know, these structural factors that really, impact people's ability to, um, you know, have healthy births. And that's obstetric violence. And we know that the roots of, um, of obstetrics are in racism. When we look at how the tools that are used today, you know, the forceps and the stirrups and um, the, the scissors to cut the, the birthing person from um, their, their perineum to their anus to, to give birth, which is not necessary. Um, and it's very, uh, you know, it's a practice that should be eradicated. But those things are really rooted in um, the violence that was um, perpetrated on Black women's bodies um, by J. Marion Sims and others who were doctors that really just decided that they were going to practice on Black women's bodies. Um, and it was medical abuse. And so we have that, you know, at play and that you can't really separate the current obstetric care from that roots of medical abuse and, and um, racism. Um, and then you have, you know, the, um, the, as we've been talking about the eradication of, of midwives and the, the lack of availability of holistic care, coupled with the lived experience of racism. And the CDC has done some work on this um, on the life course perspective, which is really this weathering effect or an allostatic load that happens in your body. It's not just what I think or what I feel, but it, it has physical implications because our hormones are released, cortisol, adrenaline, and it drives up you know, blood pressure. It makes you more um, predisposed to hypertension, diabetes, and these um, complications that if you don't have a way to buffer that, balance that, treat it holistically, and remove that um, stress, those stress factors, which most of us don't, actually have worse birth outcomes than high school um, dropouts who are white women. And so we think education can get us out of it. We think money can get us out of it, but it, it doesn't. Um, and when you look at folks like Serena Williams, who you know experienced a really significant health event where her care providers didn't believe her when she told them, um, hey, I'm having a, a major complication here and I need treatment. And she had to convince her own healthcare providers um, and she was more familiar with her own medical history, you know, than they were. And then you have someone like Kira Johnson, 
um, may she rest in peace, who unnecessarily was, you know, died and, and really was murdered by the system as her um, husband tried to convince nurses and doctors that she needed immediate care. And they didn't give it to her for hours and hours. And then she died on the operating table. And that was a completely unnecessary, tragic death. Um, you know. And so we have situations like that where there's direct discrimination. And then we have an overall system that is based in you know, an institutional white supremacy that is really geared um, against black folks and, and really bent on disenfranchising us from the types of care and wellness that you know, we know that we need. You deserve to have access to care. You deserve to have the care providers that honor your values and your family. You know, those are just basic things that we have learned through Black midwifery. Um, I want to be really clear that birth justice is based in Black midwifery. Um, and in those traditions, we then can, you know, push this movement to really compel hospitals to change. Because in the interim, as we're pushing for more, um, an increased number of Black midwives and, and um, um, you know, trying to get more folks through school and open more educational pathways and get more folks licensed um, and make this profession more sustainable. In the interim, 98% of people are still birthing in hospitals. And so we have to get the hospitals to change too. It can't just be on the midwives. Um, unveiled this month by members of the Black Maternal Health Caucus was a 12 bill package um, that included uh, legislation that you know, essentially speaks to this very issue, uh, the Black Maternal Health Momnibus of 2020. Uh, talk a little bit about what that is and why it's important. It's important because it is kind of the, speaking to the social determinants of health and structural determinants of health that we've been talking about. I mean, when you, when you look at the bill, it's sort of literally labeled um, in that way in some sections and that is so inspiring. And so I also wanna say that, that that work has come from uh, reproductive justice scholars, which is a, a black led sort of movement and thoughts and practices. And so um, I think it's important to remember too that these federal based solutions, I have all the respect and I'm so incredibly, so many of us are excited about that because it is a game changer, um, particularly also for um, midwifery that we have to also recognize that that work comes from uh, scholarship and organizations, National Birth Equity Collaborative and National Black Midwives Alliance like Jamara and National Association to Advance Black Birth and the work at UCFS, Monica McLemore and Karen Scott, like it's all of that kind of, there's so much work. And so my urging for people in terms of further stuff is just understand what reproductive justice is. There is a lot of, really fantastic scholarship and grassroots movement out there. And we know that federal stuff is going to take some time, but just know in particular, there are black people who have historically like Jamara have been doing uh, this work to get us to a mommy bus. Look at me after telling y'all I wasn't gonna keep you an hour. I kept you an hour. Um, <laughs> thank y'all so much uh, for this conversation. Um, Keisha Good, Jamara Amani. Godspeed with the power, with the work that you all are doing and, um, you know, come back and see us. Yes, it's our pleasure. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed today's chat, tell a friend to tell a friend to check us out. Hit us up at BAPS Productions or at Clash Productions. If you have a topic you want to hear about, and as always, we're available on SoundCloud and Apple Music. I'm Jamal Andrus, and this is Hall Pass the Podcast.